Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Stephen Gore welcomes Dr. Sangini Sheth. Dr. Sheth is Assistant Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is Director of Hematologic Malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So cervical cancer, I thought was kind of a done deal in the United States, right? Pap smears didn't, hasn't that got ri- gotten rid of cervical cancer? We've definitely made a huge impact on the rates of cervical cancer um, since the pap smear really started to be used regularly for, for screening for cervical cancer in the 1950s. Uh, but there's still some areas where we can um, improve. Uh, first of all, the virus, HPV, human papillomavirus, that causes most cervical cancer is also responsible for causing several other cancers. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those other cancers we don't have a way to screen for. In addition, um, while we've done a great job lowering the rate of cervical cancer in countries like the United States, in the developing world where they're not able to utilize the pap smear and screening tests as well, um, cervical cancer still remains a leading um, killer for among women. Hmm. You know, I, I sit on our uh, on a, our research review boards here, and I was surprised to see. Uh, some clinical trials here at Yale involving advanced cervical cancer. And again, I, I, I was just surprised to find that our community in New Haven uh, would have people who are at risk uh, or apparently have advanced cervical cancer. Absolutely. So um, about half of women who are diagnosed with cervical cancer in the United States are found to not have had a screening test in the last five years. Wow. So, so while the pap smear is available, um, we still have work to do on getting everyone screened whenever they are due to be screened. Um, and there's also a economic and racial disparity that exists in the United States where black and Hispanic women are much more likely to be diagnosed with cervical cancer and their mortality rates um, are also higher. Do you think the problem is mainly one of education? Is there cultural resistance to screening uh, or is it an access problem that these patients uh, or these uh, non-patients don't have access to routine gynecological care? Uh, So I think it's a combination. I think access is um, certainly an issue um, in rural parts of the country where it may be harder to get to um, a physician that could perform this kind of um, pap smear and exam um, might be more challenging. Um, I think that there are historical and cultural barriers sometimes to getting in to the doctor's office. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't feel welcome or um, and I think education is a part of it, too, Um, as an OBGYN, I often have women who um, 
confuse the having an exam with having a pap smear. And it's not the case that every time a woman has a pelvic exam um, that a pap smear is being done. And sometimes there's a lack of awareness of exactly what tests were done. Hmm. Um, And so they may be under the impression that a pap smear was done, but that may not have been the case. Wow. So I guess it behooves the patient if they're having a pelvic exam for an ad hoc reason or even a planned uh, routine exam to to ask their doctor if a pap smear was done, right? Yeah, I, I would say that um, we probably need both parties need to be a little bit more self-aware about the importance of communication, um, both the patient to um, kind of be their self-advocate and make sure they understand everything that's being done. And for um, the provider, whether it's a physician or a midwife, um, to clearly uh, communicate what they are planning to do and, and at the end of the visit, what was done. Hmm. And, and what is the sensitivity of the pap smear? I mean, if a woman is getting screened, I'm not sure what the recommendation is currently. Perhaps you can fill us in how often uh, a healthy women uh, with no history should should be getting screened with pap smears. I know that's changed over over the years, but give if they are getting their routine screening, um, can they be pretty certain uh, that a negative pap means they're in good shape? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I'll I'll answer the screening um, schedule first. So for um, screening, should not start with pap smear until the age of twenty one, regardless okay. of any other um, past history, um, and then. Between the ages of 21 to 29, um, assuming that the tests are normal, it's every three years with the pap smear. Um, what is more recent, so in the last about um, 15 years, is we've added uh, an HPV test. So as I mentioned earlier, human papillomavirus is the virus that causes most cervical cancers. And now we have ways to test for that virus. And so the um, the combination of testing for that virus, in addition to the pap smear, which is looking at the cells from the cervix under a microscope, um, that combination is an in- is incredibly powerful. Um, and so we do that testing for women 30 and older. And the reason that we start at 30 is because um, of our understanding of HPV. So HPV is a sexually transmitted virus, um, but it is incredibly common. So about 80% of people who are sexually active will have HPV at some point in their life. Mm. Um, And most of that virus, our bodies are able to clear um, and kind of fight off the virus. And so it's a very small percentage of people in whom the virus stays around and it's that persistence of the virus that really increases the risk of developing a precancer or maybe even a cancer of the cervix. Now, wait a minute. Isn't that HPV virus the same one which causes genital warts? Yeah. So are you telling me that 80% of the sexually active population has warts? Um, so the HPV has many different strains, um, so many different types of HPV. And there are two in particular that are low-risk strains. Um, they're called low-risk because they don't have potential to become cancer. Okay. And those two low-risk strains are, um, are responsible for about 90% of genital warts. Okay. Um, and so, again, like I said, most 
people are their immune system is able to fight off the virus. Um, and so that's why most people don't see genital warts or even precancer or cancer because their bodies fight it off. I see. And, and the ones that cause cancer is what you're saying are not the same ones which are causing warts for the most part. Exactly. Those are what we call high risk strains. And there's about 14 um, high risk strains um, out there that are primarily responsible for uh, causing cervical cancer. Well, so how do you screen? Where do you screen for the virus? Is this a blood test or is this a, a test during the pelvic exam also? Um, it's a test that's performed on the same sample that's um, that the pap, pap smear is done on. I see. Um, so it doesn't require anything additional from the patient um, or during the exam. It's it's kind of done behind the scenes in the laboratory. On the microscope slide then. Um, right. Pretty much. Oh, interesting. Um, so 80 percent. Wow. Um, why then wait till 30 to start doing the screening when so many women nowadays are sexually active at a much earlier age? Yeah. Um, so because the HPV virus is so common, um, and it's most common in younger people, um, so under the, um, especially in that under 25 age category, um, and because so much of it clears on its own, we don't want to pick up infections that are that the body's going to be able to take care of on its own because having abnormal testing either HPV testing or an abnormal pap smear leads to a whole series of other procedures and exams um, and there's there's downsides to um, unnecessarily picking up um, infections that the body's going to be able to take care of on its own um, it can cause anxiety um, these Exams and procedures can be uncomfortable, maybe even painful um, for some people. Um, and so we really want to try to narrow down to really only um, having to have the women that are at truly increased risk um, to need these additional procedures. And that's why um, the HPV testing routinely starts at age 30. I see. So, so let's walk through this a little bit. Let's say that we've got a 40-year-old uh, married mom, just to make it very middle America uh, conventional, and she's monogamous mm -hmm. at this point in her life uh, with her um, partner, her husband, um, and she goes in for her routine gynae exam and, um, and has a pap smear that shows HPV infection. Is that what it would show? Sure. Or persistence? What happens next? So it depends on the res also the results of the pap smear. Okay. Um, in some cases, it may just be that instead of waiting a few years to get the next pap smear, we do one again a year later. Okay. Um, if the pap smear results, so the degree of abnormality of the cells is um, more concerning, then the next step would be um, an exam called a colposcopy. Um, and that's an exam that's done in the gynecologist's office most of the time. sounds scary. Yeah, it's a big word, but it's really just looking at the cervix with a specialized microscope. Okay. Um, so, so not that different in many ways from what they 
that woman has already been through for the um, exam. She'll be on an exam table with stirrups and so on. Exactly. Um, and then the the part that could be different is that if with the microscope we see any areas that are concerning or that we feel like we need more information on, then there's a small biopsy that's performed um, at this at that time. Um, and I, you know, as someone who does this procedure all the time, I would say that um, most women tolerate it incredibly well. They often don't even know that when the biopsy has been done. Hmm. Um, you know, it can be sometimes a, a touch uncomfortable, but but certainly, you know, the office is a perfectly appropriate space for that. Kind of like a pinch, really. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then what happens? Um, so then the biopsy goes to pathology and they take a cl- closer look at it and they we get more information back as to um, whether there's an abnormality there and what the extent of the abnormality is. Um, and this is now we're getting into um, what we call cervical dysplasia, um, often thought of as a precancer of the cervix. Funny cells that are not behaving normally. Exactly. And there's a gradation here. Um, so it could be that the biopsy comes back completely benign. Um, or normal cells, um, which is you know great news for That's the patient. What we hope for, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and then they, we would just want to still keep a close eye on them and have them come back for a pap smear in a year. Um, it could be that it comes back as what we call a CIN one, um, cervical intraepithelial neoplasia one. The risk of that developing into a cervical cancer over the years to come is exceedingly low. Um, and so even in that case, we would just take a keep a close eye with another pap smear in a year. Hmm. Um, and the, um, the abnormalities that we uh, really want to kind of focus in on are the CIN2 and the 3, um, which are associated over a, you know, a f- series of years with an increased risk of cervical cancer. Um, and in that case, you know, we factor in the patient's prior history, their age, um, obviously have a, you know, a conversation with them about, um, you know, what they would be interested in pursuing in terms of treatment. Um, we also, sorry, factor in um, their future fertility um, and make a plan together about what the next um, kind of course of action would be. But oftentimes there is additional treatment um, that comes into play at that point. All right. Well, I'm sure our listeners are going to want to know all about that. Uh, But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about cervical cancer and the HPV virus with Dr. Sangini Sheth. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, working to change the cancer paradigm through personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. It is estimated that over 200,000 men in the U.S. will be diagnosed with prostate cancer this year, with almost 3,000 new cases in Connecticut alone. One in six American men will develop prostate cancer in the course of his lifetime. Major advances in the detection and treatment of prostate cancer have dramatically decreased the number of men who die from the disease. Screening for prostate cancer can be performed quickly and easily in a physician's office using two simple tests, a physical exam and a blood test. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center, and at Smilo Cancer Hospital to test innovative new treatments for prostate cancer. 
The Artemis machine is a new technology being used at Smilo Cancer Hospital that enables targeted biopsies to be performed as opposed to removing multiple cores from the prostate for examination that may not be necessary. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. I'm Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Sangini Sheth. We've been discussing cervical cancer and the human papilloma vaccine or virus uh, so far. Um, Sangini, so before the um, break, you were uh, walking us through, uh, you know, the scenario of an otherwise healthy middle-aged woman uh, having a pap smear and then this colposcopy test to look closer at an mm-hmm. abnormality and maybe having uh, one of these early pre-malignant or I guess low-grade malignant, whatever you want to call it, these CIN twos and threes that are of concern. And you're going to have a conversation uh, with that uh, patient about what the options are. Can we follow through on what happens next? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for um, most CIN two and three, um, there is often treatment involved, um, and that treatment um, can be pursued in a few different ways. Um, So the goal of any treatment is going to be to remove that abnormal area of the cervix. Um, That can happen through a minor surgical procedure, um, either um, often termed a cold knife conization, which typically happens in in the operating room as a same-day surgery, um, or as um, something called a leap a loop electrosurgical excision procedure. Um, many offices um, are able to do leap procedures actually in the office. Oh, wow. Um, and occasionally um, they're also done in the operating room, again, as a same-day procedure. Um, there are additional um, treatment options available, um, such as cryotherapy, um, which is essentially freezing off wow. um, the abnormal cells, um, or pursuing that excision therapy but using um, laser technology instead. Um, So we kind of divide treatment up into ablation or just kind of destroying those abnormal cells versus excision, which is removing the cells. The benefit of excision is that we're able to send um, the tissue to pathology to get even more information about what's going on. Um, There's a small um, group of women, um, younger women, who you know maybe want to pursue uh, childbearing in the future, especially if they have CIN2, that kind of middle ground, um, where there may be a role for observation. Um, so keeping a very close eye with frequent exams, um, maybe every six months or so, um, because there is about a 25-30% chance that a a CIN2 type of lesion could regress on its own. Hmm. Um, And I've now mentioned kind of this plan for future childbearing a few times. And and the reason that that plays a role is that there is some evidence that removing or destroying cells on the cervix can lead to a small but slightly increased risk to future pregnancy. Um, And so we want to be um, very careful in, um, you know, what sort of treatment plan we pursue um, in in that group of women. Um, Mm. The types of risks we're talking about are preterm labor um, or um, premature rupture of membranes um, 
and sometimes um, kind of a scarring of the cervix. So anytime we talk about surgery, there's a risk of scarring in the area of the surgery. But the problem isn't getting pregnant then. It's the question of maintaining a a normal pregnancy to the term. Typically, yes. Yeah, interesting. So um, once the uh, area has been removed, is the patient then free of the HPV and and kind of just like say okay I'm done with that thank goodness and I don't have to worry about it anymore? Yeah, um, the the kind of treatment rate or regression rate with these types of treatments is is very good, um, and what we typically do is um, follow them with a Pap smear every year for the first two years, and assuming that those are um, no, come back normal um, after the two years immediately following treatment, they can return to kind of routine screening, the same as before all of this happened. I see. And, and do you think the HPV has gone from their body, or is it still latent somewhere? Yeah, so HPV is is tricky, and it's, um, it's hard to know, um, partly because it's so common. Sometimes it's hard to differentiate what is continued infection versus a reinfection. Gotcha. Um, and to kind of separate that out um, is not always know. clear. Do we know how the virus causes cancer? Um, so the virus is able to embed itself into the um, into our normal cell um, DNA, and it kind of takes over those cells and um, starts to replicate out of control, um, wow. the way we think of kind of other cancer cells working. I see. Interesting, but but that doesn't happen right away. Apparently, if if the if the virus is so prevalent, exactly. So the natural history um, uh, from HPV infection to invasive cervical cancer is very long, which is actually what makes it um, so that we can have these screening tests um, because we can we're able to catch um, abnormalities early and intervene, um, and and that's what's responsible for driving down. Um, the rates of cervical cancer that we were talked about at the very beginning. Wow. So, um, so how effective is the HPV vaccine, um, and who should be getting it? Right. So, um, in addition to screening for cervical cancer, since two thousand and six, we've had this amazing opportunity um, to prevent um, both HPV infections and its um, downstream consequences, including cervical cancer, um, with HPV vaccines. Um, The HPV vaccine is routinely recommended um, for 11 to 12-year-old boys and girls, um, but it can be given as early as age nine. Hmm. And the key is that it's given prior to any exposure to HPV, which is why it's at a young age. Um, The vaccine is known to be um, very safe, very effective. Um, The most recent vaccine to come onto the market in 2014 um, is protective against nine types of HPV, um, which account within that nine types is the two that cause 90% of genital warts and also um, about 85 to 90% of cervical cancers. Oh, wow. Um, so there's a lot of protection to be gained um, from the vaccine. Um, and when started early, so um, when started before the age of 15, it's just two doses, um, six to 12 months apart. Um, 
If the first, if the series is started um, at 15 years or older, um, then it's a three-dose series, um, and it is um, FDA approved and recommended to give through the age of 26. Um, so if someone gets a late start, um, it's perfectly okay. Um, we are able to vaccinate them on, um, until their 27th birthday. Hmm. Um. Now, I know for some uh, vaccinations, like hepatitis B, for example, it's recommended that people have subsequent blood tests to see if they, in fact, reacted uh, with immunity to the virus. Is there anything, to the vaccine, rather? Uh, is there anything like that with, with these HPV vaccines, or you just get your series of shots and, and hope for the best? Yeah, so at this point, there is no other recommended um, you know, screening or testing. Um, it's just getting the two or three dose series. Um, and um, so far, um, there's, you know, whatever data has come out to date has shown really good results um, in countries like Australia that have incredibly high vaccination rates. Um, they've in just a few years, they've seen a dramatic decline in their genital warts um, at a population level. Um, unfortunately, in the United States, our rates of vaccination um, are, are lagging, um, and um, there's um, there's a lot of opportunity there to get our rates to be much higher. Do we know what the factors are there? I mean, I know that some... When the vaccine first came out, I remember people thinking that we were encouraging young women at the time, uh, young girls, really, to be sexually active. And so there was kind of a backlash against why were we sort of like promoting sexual activity in young women? Yeah, that's a that's a great um, question. And um, and there's a lot of research that's come out since the vaccine first came out in 2006 um, to show that the HPV vaccine is not at all associated um, with early age of sexual activity or an increase in number of partners. Um, and, you know, really the message needs to be that this is about cancer prevention. Um, there's not a lot of other cancers that we can prevent with just a simple shot. Um, and so, um, the, the other reasons that we've come to know um, that are associated with lower rates of um, vaccination, um, a lot of it is um, come, sits with the provider. It's really incumbent on them to recommend the vaccine, recommend it with their um, full endorsement. This would be pediatricians, right? I mean, because the girls aren't seeing gynecologists at age nine. Exactly. Um, so family care, family per, um, physicians, sure. pediatricians, um, exactly. Um, and, and to really kind of um, stress, again, that this is about cancer prevention. It's not about doesn't have to be about sex um, or sexually transmitted infections. Is the vaccine covered by insurance and by Medicaid, for example? Um, absolutely. The, um, the uh, vaccine is covered um, based on the CDC's recommendations. So between the ages of 9 and 26 in girls and young women, um, Medicaid covers it, um, private insurances cover it. And for um, people who are uninsured or underinsured, there is a whole federal program, the Vaccines for Children program, that covers all vaccines for children wow. under 18, including the HPV vaccine. Oh, that's fantastic. I didn't know about that. And so boys don't have cervix, uh, cervixes. <laughs> the boys don't have a cervix. And so are we just vaccinating them so they don't get warts? Um, so there's a few reasons to vaccinate them. Um, boys um, 
can spread HPV to their female partners. Um, and so there is benefit in vaccinating our boys and our girls for that reason. Sure. Um, certainly to protect them against genital warts. Um, and I should mention there are a few different, there's three types of HPV vaccines out on the market. Only two of them, um, Gardasil and Gardasil 9, are able to protect against genital warts. And those are the two that are recommended for boys. Okay. Um, and then the... There's a few other reasons. So as I mentioned, um, HPV is associated with several other cancers in addition to cervical cancer. Mm. That includes um, head and neck cancers um, and also anal cancers. And so um, those have the potential of um, being protective for um, boys and men as well. Hmm. And is that uh, dependent upon the kind of sexual activity that the individual um participates in? Exactly. So head and neck cancer from somebody who's having oral sex uh, with an HPV-infected partner and anal cancer from somebody who's having either oral anal contact or genital anal contact in a sexual encounter? Exactly. I see. So, and of course, uh, we don't know what our boys are going to be up to when they're becoming young men. Uh, and certainly we don't want them getting cancer. And certainly oral sex is pretty prevalent in our uh, in our mainstream population now. Right, exactly. And and that's why, you know, it's this is not about trying to predict, you know, who's going to be doing what type of sexual activity at what age. It's really um, about, you know, it, there's an opportunity to prevent multiple types of cancers, um, and we should do everything we can to protect um, our communities. You know, I, I think it's, um, I can imagine that it must be challenging for some parents that are dealing with their nine-year-old, little third, fourth grader, and this is forcing them to to confront the fact that this young child is soon to be an adolescent and a young adult and will be sexually active. And I, I can imagine that that's, you know, kind of challenging to confront for some parents. I, I can definitely understand um, as a as a parent myself, um, you know, those are very sensitive topics um, to be thinking about. Um, and but as an gynecologist, I will also say that, um, you know, for a patient to have to go through multiple exams and all the procedures that I discussed earlier that come with um, having to diagnose and treat precancer, um, and we didn't even get into, you know, what's involved when if someone has cancer, um, I, I would say that, um, you know, to replace all that with, you know, two to three shots is, is far worth it. Dr. Sangini Sheff is Assistant Professor of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.